Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Mark Daguerre continues our series of messages on the Gospel according to Mark. Today, looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. And now, here's Mark. Good morning, everyone. It's almost like you don't have a choice but to say good morning when I say that. eh? Let's start with prayer. Father, again, we want to thank you for allowing us to uh, come together to worship you, to sing to you, Lord, and also through the study of your word. Lord, we think of uh, Burma and the fact that they are having difficulties at this time to meet together. Lord, we just pray for them and all those around the world that have a desire to get together with other believers, Lord, and yet they are uh, prevented uh, from doing so. Lord, we just pray that that day would not come to uh, our country, Lord. And we praise you for that. Amen. So open your Bible or your app, if you have an app, to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking at chapter 1 in Mark's Gospel today. As Steve mentioned last week, Mark is the guy that went with Paul and Barnabas on their evangelistic road trip. His mother's name was Mary, not to be mistaken with Mary, the mother of Jesus. I know there's a lot of Marys in the Bible. Imagine being named Mary, then you're being called out to in a a crowded uh, room, and half the people turn around because they think you're calling their name, right? So it was Mary's home that the group of believers got together to fervently pray for Peter when Peter was stuck in prison. They want him to be freed. So Mark was there. It's been pointed out that Mark is probably that young lad in uh, this gospel who was almost captured when Jesus and his disciples uh, were there and the soldiers came to get Jesus. The reality is that we've been blessed with four gospels. We have the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is written to primarily a Jewish audience. When you open the book of Matthew, you see the first thing is the Jewish genealogy. Say that three times fast. You know, quotes more from the Old Testament than any of the other Gospels. It goes back and forth with these long sections and actions. It's as if a rabbi was teaching his disciples. That's the style behind the book of Matthew. And you were to expect that if you were a Jewish reader. And it shows Jesus as the line of the tribe of Judah. The Gospel of Luke, on the other hand, is written by a Greek physician, written to a Greek audience. It demonstrates the compassion and the humanity of Christ. It begins with his birth and it finishes with his ascension. It has more parables than any of the other Gospels. And as you read through Luke's account, you see that he has a lot of detail. He's very meticulous with detail. And it shows that Jesus is the Son of Man. And it shows the love that Jesus has for both Gentiles as well as Jews. So it wasn't just for the Jews that he came. John's Gospel has a lot of theology in it. When you come across someone and you're trying to share with them the truth, you point them to the Gospel of John. It's like... Giant gospel tract. It has a lot of theology in there. 
Jesus is shown as the creator of all things. It begins with, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were created by Him. And without Him was not anything made. Speaking of Jesus. And the reason that that gospel was written, it says that you may believe. Mark's gospel, it speaks of the servanthood of Jesus. And it is written to a Gentile audience. That's why he does things like he takes the time to explain Aramaic terms. That's why he uses the Roman accounting of time instead of the Jewish accounting of time. That is also why he explains uh, Jewish customs, because the person that's reading this wouldn't necessarily understand these different customs. Because, again, this is a Gentile audience. And you'll notice that there are fewer Old Testament references in this gospel and Old Testament quotes, because he knows this audience is not going to be familiar with most of that. You also don't have as much material that would normally be of interest to a Jewish audience, like genealogies. Things like that, or things that the, the different factions and the religious groups that were going on. He, he doesn't add these things. And knowing the prejudice that exists between the Romans and the Jewish population, he actually adds Roman eyewitnesses in there. So it's his way of saying, you know what? This isn't some folklore that the Jews made up. We have our own eyewitnesses to this event. Verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare for you a, who will prepare your way before you. So this is the quote from Malachi. And it's speaking of John the Baptist, by the way. Verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is the quote from Isaiah, which also speaks of John the Baptist. I just got to say something before I continue. That stairway to heaven. Micah said a little joke to me this morning. I thought it was funny. He goes, every stairway is a stairway to heaven if you're clumsy enough. Just, you know. <laughs> so I thought I got to mention that before I forget that. <laughs> it's not theologically sound, but you know what I mean, right? So. So back in the day, though, when royalty was planning, he says, make the path straight, make it, make the way straight, right? So back in the day when royalty was planning a visit to a location, what they would do is they would send a team ahead. And this team was tasked with making sure that everything was prepared before the royalty arrived, the king arrived. So as this team would travel down the road, they would make notes, washouts, fallen trees, uneven sections, whatever it was, they would make notes. And as they would get to that next village where the king was going to visit, they would give this list to the town elders. The elders would send people out, make sure everything was correct before that king comes over. Because the last thing you want to do is not impress the king as he comes by. You want to have everything ready. So this crew would go out and fix everything. And that's what John is saying here. Well, that's what he's doing here. He's saying, he's saying, the Lord is coming. Prepare the way. Saying, Make his path straight. So he was challenging the people. He was challenging them to take the trash out of their lives. He's telling them, you know what? You've got to stop being double-minded. And they were to get rid of that thing that was preventing them from seeking the Lord. 
And as they would make sure that this roadway was clear and everything was even, they would also be living in anticipation now that, hey, I'm doing this because the Lord is supposed to be coming. The Messiah is supposed to be coming. And so then when they're anticipating this, they're ready to receive the king with joy. You know, we've probably all heard somebody say, you know, I believe in God. I'm just, you know, I'm just not ready to commit. That's like someone standing on the rails, watching a train barreling towards them and saying, you know what? I got plenty of time. Yet you got this designated safe area here, but yeah, I'm just too stubborn to get there yet. I'll be able to get out of the way when it's time to get out of the way. You know, that'd be ludicrous to hear somebody say something like that. But then you'll have some people that, you know, think that they need to be cleaned up before they come to God. A lot of people think, ah, you know, I'm just too dirty to come to God right now. So give me some time. I'll clean up my act. And then when I'm ready, I'll come and see God. But then they hear that you can't be ready to come and see God. You can't clean yourself. You actually have to come as you are. So some of them rejoice. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. That would have taken me forever. That's correct. It would have taken you forever. You know, so you come to Jesus as you are. But then you'll have some that are just like, yeah, well, then they just make more excuses. Then you have some that say, you know what, I'm just not interested. I prefer that because it's a lot easier dealing with somebody that's honest than somebody that's making excuses. Usually, though, it's those pet sins that are just too enticing. You know, everyone has pet sins. We get so much pleasure out of them. We can think of all these creative ways to make excuses in order to justify ourselves. Imagine what could be accomplished if we took that energy and actually used it towards something good, putting that energy towards something good. How many problems we could solve with that? Instead of wasting energy coming up with these excuses. Verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In Luke one seventeen, we read that John came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And when you read through the books of Kings, you see many similarities between the two, even down to their attire. If you read Second Kings chapter 1, it says King Ahaziah, is speaking with his messengers. He says in verse 7, Then he said to them, What kind of man was it that came up to meet you and told you these words? So they answered him, A hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, Ah, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So you could see that John was quite familiar with the scriptures and he could obviously relate to uh, Elijah right down to what he was wearing. It's like, both Elijah and John were bold in speech, and both of them abhorred sin. Abhorred. I forgot the H in there. They abhorred sin. Their job, if you will, was to prepare the hearts of the people. 
They were the bulldozers that were going to create that roadway. And inevitably, it created this clear distinction between those that were really seeking after God and those that were just giving a lip service to God, right? Just to impress the other religious people. They're giving some lip service. So like I said, these guys were the bulldozers. They were preparing the hearts of the people and also the way of the Lord. The world needs a lot more spirit-filled people with the power of Elijah. But back to our text here. This, uh, this ceremonial washing that I'm going to be talking about is kind of like with the baptism that he's doing right now. So there's a ceremonial washing that the Jewish people would do uh, around the Jerusalem area. So you had these public pools or baths, if you want to call them that, where they used to baptize people. And they did this with Gentiles that would be new converts to Judaism. You were now associating yourself with the Israel. So you were at one time following some pagan god. You decided through hearing what was going on in Israel, hearing through testimonies, that there is this one true God, and you decided to follow this God with all your heart. So then you would be baptized into the community. And they would be symbolizing the change in their ideas, the change in their direction. And this was this new thing that they were going to be doing apart from their, their previous life. Now they believe in the one true God of Israel. But they would also use these ceremonial baths for when a Jewish person would actually turn from their sin back to the one true God. So you had people that would be like living a, a life of sin, and then all of a sudden they decided, you know what? I've been going down the wrong path. I need to change my ways. I need to go back to the Lord. And this was a real work of the Holy Spirit in those lives. These pools, they had steps going down into the pool, but then they had steps on the other side. And the whole thing was that you walk in on one end, and the symbolism that you walk out the other end, you're not the same person as when you came in. You come out a different way. But just as we have today, you would have cultural Jews and you would have religious Jews. Or something closer to home, you have cultural Christians and born-again Christians. Everybody claims to be a Christian. They believe in something in Christianity, but it doesn't make them a Christian. See, both types have the same basic beliefs, but only one comes with God's gift of everlasting life. And as with many traditions over time, the majority of the people went through the steps of this ceremonial bath without it really being appropriated to their own lives. To some, it was just a ceremony. To some, it was like a mystical cleansing. The people would go into the pool and they would come out the other end and they would think that, you know, their sins were washed away through this pool. So live like the devil during the week, show up at the pool, cleanse it all off. And here comes John the Baptist, who doesn't preach at the temple, which is where most of the people would have probably assume that the forerunner to the Messiah would be standing preaching. Instead, he's a spirit-filled man, preaching in the wilderness. And the people are walking at least a day's journey to go hear what this guy has to say. And what they are hearing from his lips is about just as far removed as you can hear what was going on at the temple. And he's telling them, repent. Repent. Probably something that they really 
couldn't grasp for a lot of people. Even today, a lot of people, what does that mean exactly? Repent. Change your mind about what you're doing. Change your direction. And at this moment, these guys are like, they're like fish flowing down the river, going towards the Dead Sea, not realizing what the end result is. The conviction sets in and people's lives are beginning to change. And then he baptizes them, not in the pools where the other people are getting baptized in the Jerusalem area. He baptizes them in the Jordan, where it's not known, it's known for not having the cleanest and most pristine waters around. It's like saying, you know what, when you're coming out of there, you're just as filthy as you were when you got in. Because the things of this world, they're not fit to be cleansing. They don't clean you. So they understood that the baptism didn't wash away their sins. The baptism didn't save them. It didn't protect them. They knew that they were just as filthy as they were before. It's just now they recognize their need of a Messiah. The only one that could actually cleanse them from their sin. So John told them to repent. And some did. They turned away from what they were doing and wholeheartedly changed their direction. Verse 9. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. The voice, then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is where Mark introduces us to the three persons of the Godhead. So we have Jesus, the Messiah, the Holy Spirit coming down, and when we have the voice of God, the Father. It's the same statement that you hear twice in Matthew's Gospel. And remember, Matthew was written to Jewish readers. And when they would be reading Matthew's account and come across this portion that says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, they would be able to draw out additional details. Because Jews describe it as an onion that you peel You can read the same sentence and you can get multiple layers out of it. They were very familiar with the book of Moses, the books of Moses. Also, they didn't use commas. So they could change the location of a pause. Like that. Which could sometimes change the emphasis. Such as, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Or, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So as they're reading, they could make this uh, Jesus equal with God the Father just by the emphasis on the statement that they're reading. You know, we've heard some say, uh, uh, you know, if Jesus is without sin, why did he have to get baptized? They try to trip us up, you know, boss. He's perfect. If he's without sin, why is he getting baptized? I thought that was just for sinners. And really, this is the question that John the Baptist was thinking. Here's Jesus coming to him in the Jordan to get baptized. And John's like, oh, I don't need to baptize you. Right? But then Jesus explains to him his intention. And he says, you know what? I need to do this to fulfill the scriptures. He was doing the will of the Father, but he was also identifying with sinful man. John didn't necessarily understand, but then Jesus explained, John understood. 
So Jesus didn't have to be baptized. He didn't have to die in our place. He chose to do these things. And he always did those things which were pleasing to the Father. Verse 10. It says, The Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. You know, as, as a kid, you always see these, these pictures and like little doves and stuff like that. And I find it to be a very beautiful illustration when you really think about it. You know, it illustrates the work of the Holy Spirit. Doves are known to be gentle birds. The Holy Spirit is gentle. He's not forcing you to do anything. They aren't, doves aren't known for attacking people either. They're not like, you know, menacing like vultures or, or seagulls. Uh, you can release them at a wedding and go and collect them. Bring them home and then do it again. That's, that's how gentle these birds are. The Holy Spirit is described as faithful and gentle as a dove. And at this point, Jesus has been thoroughly identified by several witnesses. And we just began the gospel. And he's been thoroughly identified by several of them. Including Mark, the author of this gospel. And then we have John the Baptist. And finally we have God the Father. So within a few sentences, Mark has set this clear line. He's saying it's not simply a biography. It's not just some historical document. This is the testimony and the witnesses that are telling us who Jesus is and what he actually came to do. So he makes a very clear distinction in a very short period of time. Verse 12. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered to him. And so right away, Jesus is elevated and Satan is abased. It's like Jesus is taken from this. He's not just a normal man. He's brought up to the position of God. And Satan, which people tend to elevate to that position of co equal with, with uh, Jesus, is taken and, and he's brought back down to where the beasts live. And that, it's funny because the it, Gospel of Mark is the one that mentions that he's with the beasts in the field. I don't believe it says that in the other Gospels. But it's not like he's sitting there, lions and tigers and bears, oh no, right? He's, he's not afraid of these animals. Think back to when Adam was in the Garden of Eden. He had no fear of the beast. He was living among the beasts. So just as Adam would be, Jesus would not have fear of beasts. He had dominion over them. I mean, he is their Lord. He is the creator. If he was able to shut the mouths of lions in Daniel's den, he wasn't concerned with the beasts of the field. funny that even the beasts would have known who has authority over them. Why do we give the Lord such a hard time when even the beasts listen? Right? So the beast of the wilderness was not an issue because they knew exactly who he is. And he has authority over them. And then it says the angels ministered to him. He created those angels. The angels were there when he created man 
The angels were there when he created beasts. The angels knew who had authority over them. And they were there to minister to their Lord. So again, Christ is elevated. Verse 14. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As you can clearly see from Jesus' own words, in order to be saved, one cannot just believe or one cannot just repent. We have some people that believe you just, you, re, you just have to repent all the time and some people that believe you just got to believe. Well, they actually go together. You have to repent and believe and the two go hand in hand and you'll notice that there are two necessary ingredients for salvation and the order for salvation in order for salvation to be birthed in the person, you have to have both of these things. And yet the command is to, uh, to believe is given after we are told to repent. There's an order. And when Jesus says we need to repent, he's not calling us to have an emotional response. You can't think, I had an emotional response, therefore that's repentance. That's not at all what it is. It's a command. He's saying repent. Period. Repent includes acknowledging sin in our own lives. It's easy to point it out in other people's lives. But we have to acknowledge it in our own lives. And, but you have to see it in the light of God's Word. Because you won't necessarily think of the small sins when you have to realize that even those small sins are a disgrace and a stench in the nostrils of God. So then after that, part of that whole point of repentance is that you actually realize that there's real consequences to those sins. Big sins and small sins. They're all sins. At the same time, it's human nature to not like it when we are told to do something. When somebody says repent, our natural inclination might be to like, kind of like, hey, whoa, right? So we're supposed to come as a child. That's why I love those those child songs that we sing sometimes. It's like, it brings us back to how we need to be when we come before God. But it should be different when someone is telling you something, to do something, and they know the end result. And that they love you with all sincerity. We should listen to it in a different way. If I got some stranger coming to me telling me, hey, you need to do certain, certain things, well, I'll be kind of like standoffish trying to figure out why it is they're telling me these things. But if my parent comes to me and says, listen, you shouldn't be doing this, then I should be pausing and, and listening to my parents because I know that ultimately they have their, my best interests in their hearts. And God has shown his love with all sincerity by sending us prophet after prophet to deliver these people and us the message of the gospel. And once a person has true repentance, then they can have true belief. Because you can't have true belief without true repentance. You'll hear again people say, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. Do you believe in God? Or do you have a depth of understanding and belief in God? Do you believe that your sin is exceedingly sinful in the sight of God? So when Jesus is saying, 
believe. He's not just saying some general belief like, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. The belief is that he's talking about is like the kind of belief that you've crossed over to another level. The kind of belief that is about a relationship, which brings a trust in a person. So trusting in them is very different than just believing in them. And when you trust in somebody like that, you can depend on them. Dependence is very different when you add that to believe. Verse 16. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the, in the, in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants and went after him. So his offer to them, as well as to us, is that if we follow him, he will make us to become fishers of men. So here's a few things about just that one statement. One, number one, the desire to fish is immediate. You know, they stopped what they were doing. So the two that had their own business, they just stopped it. The two that were working with the father, they left hired servants with them. So they made sure he was taken care of. They didn't leave him holding the bag. But the desire was immediate. But at the same time, the skill of fishing was something that develops over time. He says, I will make you fishers of men. Number two, it's a qualifying statement. Meaning, if we say that we are following Jesus, we will be fishers of men. On the other hand, if we don't fish, and if we have no desire to see people saved, then we aren't really walking in close proximity with the Lord. And number three, it's a promise. It's something that will come to pass. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So when Jesus calls these people to follow him, they hadn't attended a school of theology. They didn't have some kind of religious degree. They were just ordinary people going about their work. But what set them apart is that they were seeking the truth. And then when they were seeking the truth, they were, remember they had prepared their hearts. They were making the path straight. And when they were seeking the truth, they found it in Jesus Christ. And God had been preparing these people here to do a work way before this day. I don't think it's a coincidence that these guys were fishermen by trade. I think God had already prepared them for the task at hand. And you see things like this, like they were hard workers. Uh, you know, they had to learn about teamwork. You can't be working on the Sea of Galilee with a bunch of other guys and not work as a team. They had to learn patience. Imagine the amount of patience they would have had to learn. Whew. Imagine being on the Sea of Galilee, again, getting caught up in a storm. You'd have to have all these skills, including you'd have to have courage, stamina, and faith. And overall, you'd need to have a good attitude. 
And since they had been doing it for this long, you know that they didn't have uh, this, this wanting to quit all the time. I mean, they kept going. I don't know how long I would have lasted on a boat in that sea. I have a hard time going on a shore with a rod. Now, we've all had a variety of work and experiences in our lives. And I don't think it's a coincidence either. So as we follow Christ and we make ourselves available, he's going to be, we're going to be able to draw from that knowledge bank in order to be used by him for the things that he's set before us to do. It's no coincidence. But in order for us to be used for his glory, we need to be a servant, to have a servant's heart just like him as well. This would have been very unusual for the person reading the Gospel of Mark, knowing that they were primarily Roman readers, okay? It would have been very different for them to read this because a Roman reader would be taken off guard because they didn't think highly of servants. And yet, he's portraying Jesus as the servant. You don't write about servants. Books are written about those that are revered. Books are written about important leaders. People that have changed nations are men of war. People that have conquered. That's what you write about. Not about some servant. And yet, one of the ways Jesus is described in the Bible is that of a servant. The creator of the universe. You can't get higher royalty than that. He steps off his throne and condescends to men. He's reviled by many that are actually supposed to rejoice at his coming. And he allows them to take him and to crucify him in order to save them from the penalty of death. All that is required from us is repentance and faith. Faith in who he is, faith in what he did. In the end, the servant becomes the hero. I want to bring my atten- or our attention actually to one final witness. That would be the witness of the Holy Spirit. Even though he's mentioned in several verses, his work of witnessing to who Christ is really only began when the Father glorified Jesus. So by the time the recipients of this gospel were reading it, the Holy Spirit would bear witness to the truth. So as you were hearing the words from this, the Holy Spirit is prompting them. He's the one prodding the conscience. He's the one that as they're hearing this text, he's really working in them. He's also the one that's convicting people when you're witnessing to somebody, when you're talking to somebody about the scriptures, their conscience. He's the one bearing witness on them. And that really freaks people out. Because you could talk to them and then I could say to them, you know your conscience is bothering you right now. And they're like, how do you see my conscience? I don't see your conscience. I know what your conscience is there for. And the Holy Spirit is the one that opens their understanding to the truth. Because without that, they won't understand. That's why you could talk to somebody and it's almost like it's not getting in there. Because the Holy Spirit has to open their understanding. I want to close off with something that D.L. Moody said. He said, I remember hearing of a man at sea 
who was very sick. If there's a time when a man feels that he cannot do any work for the Lord, it is then, in my opinion. While this man was sick, he heard that a man had fallen overboard. He was wondering if he could do anything to help save him. He laid hold of a light and held it up to the porthole. The drowning man was saved. When this man got over his attack of sickness, he was up on deck one day and was talking to the man who was rescued. The saved man gave this testimony. He said he had gone down the second time and was just going down again for the last time. When he put out his hand, just then, he said, someone held the light at the porthole and the light fell on his hand. A man caught him by the hand and pulled him into the lifeboat. It seemed a small thing to do to hold up the light, yet it saved the man's life. Moody went on to say, if you cannot do something great, if you cannot do some great thing, you can hold the light for some poor, perishing drunkard who may be one to Christ and delivered from destruction. Let's pray. Father, knowing that we get to spend eternity with you, to be in awe of you, to marvel at your wisdom, to marvel at your grace. For we can't help but thank you enough. Father, as we think of uh, that final statement from D.L. Moody, Lord, again, another one of your uh, instruments that you use to, to change people's hearts. Father, we think of that statement to be a light, at least shine the light so that somebody can reach out to people. Be the light so that you can do your work and save people, Lord, and pull them out from that sea. Lord, we praise you for that. And Father, we pray that also you would be with us as we leave this place. Father, that it would not only end here, but Lord, that we would take your, your message, Lord, and bring it with us and use it throughout this week and every other week, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time. <laughs>